but on the inclusion point, which is um, uh, which is the the, the 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 big question everyone's wrestling with at the moment. We've got a, a phrase we say to people when they're joining Clio, which is come to Clio and be your weird, wonderful, wacky selves, right? And I think we say that a lot as they're joining CEO, it says it in the kickoff meetings. We, we don't want anyone to feel any pressure to put on a facade when they come to work. You know, mm. Be yourself and create in that genuine culture of psychological safety. Hey, Matthew Ellis here, um, and this is the Scaling So Far podcast the place where we have candid chats with pretty awesome tech founders and people leaders about how they've built and scaled their teams. Today's guest on Scaling So Far is David Smith, VP of People at AI-powered fintech company Clio. David has a ton of experience um, at a bunch of super successful organizations, so uh, I'm sure he will have a lot to share with us in terms of what it takes to succeed and scale from a talent and people perspective. David, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Really looking to, uh, forward to hearing more about you and your journey. Um, I guess first off, icebreaker question, um, how are you doing today? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks, Matt, and thanks for having me as well. Delighted to uh, have a chat with you about this. And uh, yeah, not too bad at all. Hope everyone's uh, surviving lockdown in good spirits. Awesome, thanks for being with us. Um, so you've always held um, talent and people-focused roles, right? Um, and I'd love to hear a bit more about your journey um, to, to where you are today, really. Yeah, sure. Um, well, um, I always say this first because it is relevant. Both my parents were psychiatrists, um, which obviously people normally laugh at because it says something about me as well in terms of the way I was brought up. <laughs> being a bit mad, um, but uh, there was always a healthy interest in people in, in, in the household, and, uh, uh, psychology and how people interact and that sort of stuff. And I guess I did subconsciously pick up on some of that. Mm. Um, and I'm one of the strange people who works in kind of HR or people who wanted to do that for a living. Um, yeah. I did choose it. Um, my first ever proper job, I suppose you could call it, I had a couple of earlier stage jobs doing kind of the absolute bare bones of recruitment in HR. Um, and I joined Sage, big software company um, back home in Newcastle. And I'll never forget, I joined on the kind of grad HR program. And um, there was two jobs. There was one in marketing and there was one in tech. And at the time, tech wasn't as glamorous as it is now. <laughs> and there was myself and another lady there, both young, fresh, fresh-faced, uh, naive grads. And they said, who wants to go to which team? And marketing office was on one side of the corridor and it looked like a sort of super glamorous, upbeat, friendly place. And then the tech office was the other side and it was an R&D dungeon, right? It really was. It was dark. People were playing games in there. Uh, they, they dressed differently. No one had any shoes on. Um, it, was, uh, it was really different. I, uh, I plumped for that. I was delighted I did because um, they really, really... Um, they were the most happy people doing what they do for a living I've ever met. And mm. it was a vocation and they loved it and they were absolutely brilliant with me. They used to uh, get me along to all of the stand-ups and understand what they were doing with the product. And eventually you learn, obviously, what makes engineers tick and how to hire and all the rest. Super uh, grateful to them always. Uh, moved to a couple of different positions. Um, went to uh, Wonga in a hybrid role um, at the time. 
you know, they were on a completely crazy scaling journey, really high caliber team, um, but obviously the business ran into problem regulation wise. Um, went to Trainline, really positive story there. You know, we, um, I joined two weeks after the business had been bought by KKR. Um, yep. uh, and they basically said, we want to go on a turbocharged private equity journey and IPO within five years. Um, and as rarely happens, it worked like a dream. Um, we scaled the team at Trainline from 250 to about 1,000 in the time I was there. Um, so it was roughly 150 hires a year incrementally, plus, plus probably another 50 or so backfills. A uh, lot of tech, data science, product-focused hiring. Um, and I think we did build a genuinely very good team at Trainline. We were able to attract from all walks, which was fantastic. Um, I was also working for a female CEO there who was very big on diversity and inclusion and uh, that sort of stuff as well. And that really ingrained that. You know, she didn't let up on that at all, uh, rightly so. Um, so that that forced us to hardwire DNI into everything we did, it, which is a good thing. We're a little bit ahead of the game on that. Uh, and yeah, um, did the IPO, stayed for about a year afterwards, uh, and then via my network, because interestingly, Barney, the guy who founded Clio, was a data scientist, a graduate data scientist at Wongdom when I worked there. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So we, we didn't particularly know each other, actually, but we know some of the same people. Mm. Um, and uh, I love what Clio are doing. I love the ethos of the business. Uh, I love what we're trying to do for people in terms of... Um, offer a more positive and cost-effective solution to people who have not been well served by the banks. Um, I like the fact that the company's trying to save you money, not spend money. Uh, and from an internal perspective, the culture's superb. It's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And we've got a lot of hiring and scaling to do. Um, and we just raised a big uh, series, series B at the back end of 2020. So cash in the bank, turbo charges on, higher 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 <laughs> sounds exciting um and yeah the train line journey is one that i've i've followed and i know there were a number of kind of acquisitions involved in there as well and yes. yeah lots of super interesting stuff um so you've touched on this a little bit already but now with with clio could you tell us a little bit more about kind of the company its mission its vision and, and purpose yeah absolutely um so the mission, vision, and purpose, I guess, is is all unified under improving people's relationship with their money. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a couple of ways you can do that. One is, first of all, helping people to budget properly and stick to their uh, targets and saving goals. So mm -hmm. one of the very popular features of the application is uh, called uh, Roast Mode, which it's essentially a chatbot which will remind you of what you've committed to in terms of saving and gently and quite humorously nudge you if you're going off course with that. <laughs> um, and the product's working super well, especially in America, because the open banking software there is, is, is much more um, fruitful. If you want to get meaningful information about where people are spending money and then respond to that. Um, so you can help people improve their relationship with money in terms of helping them save and improve their outputs. Um, the other ways that you can do it is you can help people improve their credit scores. Again, you know, 70, 80% of our customers are in the US. Um, so institutions like Equifax and the big credit rating agencies there, we can advise and help customers 
on how to improve their um, credit score and therefore their uh, accessibility to credit in that market, which is good. Um, and the final thing is uh, obviously being able to offer people um, short-term, very kind of um, immediate credit at a reasonable uh, price. So uh, we have a, a kind of freemium and the premium product and the premium one, which is a subscription service, um, is, is, is a small fee every month. But if you undertake that, say for instance, you're coming up to the end of uh, the month and you're gonna fall short on paying the bill, we can bridge the gap for you and say, look, do you want to lend $100 from us? No charges to you, it's part of your subscription and then pay it back to us on payday. And the, the, the beauty of that is um, if you did that with the bank and you went over your overdraft, you're going to start paying 25, 30 pounds or dollars a day, and it quickly turns into an expensive way to lend. So we, we, we don't want to be a kind of huge wholesale lender lending masses um, in terms of every time we, we, we lend uh, uh, a person some money, but for those small kind of bridging loans we, we can probably do something there so they're the three main ways helping people improve their credit rating helping people improve their um, management of their finances and hit their spending goals and also uh, uh, being able to step in when someone is short it sounds great and it's uh, probably a topic for another day but i think the kind of the whole topic of financial education and discipline around you know budgeting and saving is uh, is a massive topic. It's certainly not something we're we're taught uh, in in school, and something we have to learn through through mistakes yeah, <laughs> in, no. our, in our lives. So, yeah, something that can help coach people and be more be more mindful of that is um, is great. Um, I mean, I believe that Clear have achieved a four hundred percent revenue growth in the last twelve months, and on top of that, <clears throat> as you just mentioned, raised a an impressive sort of 44 million um, led by by EQT. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> 2020, I'd say, been a, a pretty successful year for you all as a business. Um, yeah, what's, specifically, what's your, your journey with Clio looked like so far um, to be able to help, I guess, from a TA and, and people perspective, support scale yeah. to support that growth and then also the um, yeah, there's just so much in there. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, sure. Um, and you're right. I think 2020 was a good year for the company in the tough market. Um, the um, the rate of growth is um, the rate of growth and the fact that we're getting to um, uh, a level where we're actually uh, you know generating genuine revenue this early on in our cycle is what's making us as attractive as we are to investors to be frank, and um, we need to continue doing that. So it's the usual journey of any business. Prove you've got a product offering which can acquire customers and then market it. Then make sure you can retain customers and then look for additional forms of monetization. And obviously we're probably moving past the acquisition stage now into the more retention and monetization stage. Um, and I think the people objectives gear up behind that as well. Um, so, from my perspective, just in terms of, I guess, my objectives for the year, what I want to see happen is we, first and foremost, as a baseline, as you'd expect, need to be able to fill um, continued roles uh, with really, really high caliber product-focused professionals. And that can be anything from product analysts, data analysts, product managers, designers, engineers, any of those people who, you know, collectively form the magic that builds the products. 
Um, and then obviously scaling the support functions to support marketing, finance, etc. So we've got a people plan, we've got it laid out. We know roughly which squads we want to build to make which product bets. And it's now about uh, um, engineering that. But if I step back and look from a slightly higher level, I think there's two things. One is with the um, percentage of our user base, which is in the US, we need a on the ground presence in the US. So this was one thing I did learn at Trainline uh, to your point earlier on about acquisitions. If you want to win the market, you need to be in the market. You need people on the ground who understand the local complexities, who understand um, some of those customer journeys. You need representation if it's going to be a big part of your portfolio. And I think the big tech players do that most of the time where they have spin-off offices all over the place. Yeah. Um, and I think Clio has started doing that in the US now. So we've got some really meaningful leadership hires secured in the last couple of months in the US, which is brilliant for us. And we're now in the position where we can start to build product squads there. Um, so that um, and balancing the team between London and the US is number one objective for me. Um, and number two is probably around actually um, morale engagement and retention, particularly during this, this time of the pandemic and everything being remote. So you have to do all of the obvious stuff in terms of look at, okay, we were a 25 person business, now we're gonna be 125. How does the org structure stack up? How do we retain people? What growth opportunities can we give them? How do we support them? But the other um, thing that Barney, our, our founder is really keen on is not losing the DNA of what made the company great culturally. Um, so we work really, really hard on uh, team engagement. We spend a good amount of money on it, and I think that's right. We put an awful lot of effort into um, uh, setting up a million and one different ways for people to connect within Clio. So you know, if you want to pay for it and do it yourself within your squad, you can. The company puts events on all the time. Um, we really do spend a lot of money just getting people together, having fun, um, and not uh, not talking about work, trying to get to know each other on an individual human level. Because yeah. I think one thing that has suffered a bit with um, offices not being available is that bit. You know, you, the work stuff, the, the the transactional work stuff, still stands. Um, but I think those kind of inter intermediary moments where you could nip out for a coffee with someone, go for lunch, go for a drink after work, and they're not there at the moment. So mm -hmm. you have to you have to work harder on that. And they're probably the three big areas I'm looking at higher, sort the US out, um, and then how do we engage and retain the staff? Perfect. And it's interesting that you're you're also building product and engineering teams in the US. Um, mm -hmm. I guess it was why observe lots of companies from afar and very fascinated by that and often see the uh, the sales or go-to-market or customer success teams kind of based in in the US with engineering remaining in, in Europe so exciting to see the, um, the distribution of the, the product and engineering teams um, and on the last podcast I was on I was speaking to um, Guy Franklin um, at Graphcore yeah. and he had a very similar um, I guess set of challenges right you know under the banner of we've got the talent now what you know how do we retain the culture and engage the workforce and of course as a I know myself firsthand as well as a business matures the level of expectation comes from within the business around maturity around things like um, structured learning career mm. pathways compensation banding benefits all of this kind of stuff so yeah super super exciting um, 
you've touched on this a bit already. Um, and, you know, obviously a, a ton of learnings from previous roles at Wonga, Lloyd's, Trainline. Um, is there anything that you found particularly impactful um, that you've brought to Clio um, from those learnings? Or is there kind of like a specific approach or piece of advice that you would be happy to share when it comes to achieving people's success in in this type of fast growth organization right, that's kind of continually pushing and passing through commercial milestones and as a result, you know, people and, and scale. One thing I have learned from uh, the hyper growth um, journeys of other companies is if you're going to ask people to do new things and take on new challenges and new roles, you have to put the effort into equipping them to do that. And you have to make sure that the culture is um, sufficiently open and transparent that they have the ability to challenge back and say, we're the ones on the ground and we don't agree with what you're doing here. Um, and if you get that balance right, and, and training them was really good for this actually, it was a really good business for the culture. Um, I think what you end up with is the opportunity to progress people internally as opposed to just continually hiring in new senior leadership hires externally. If, if you wanna, um, if you wanna uh, lose your culture quickly, just hire the entire team externally at a leadership level and don't promote anyone internally. Um, I think you've got to be careful with that. And the second thing I'd say, um, again, uh, already in Clio, um, this is something we're very cognizant of, and I think I had a little bit of this at Trainline as well. Don't treat your culture as a relic. Um, so normally when you come into a business early stage and you want to scale it, there's that core 25, 30, 50, 100 people, whoever it is, who know an awful lot about the domain, who are super valuable and who you want to be part of the journey. But what you can't do is spend the next three years talking about the good old days. You, you, know, you have to be intentional about the culture. You have to accept that not only will it change, but it should change and embrace the positives behind that. Um, whilst trying to keep some of the DNA and fun um, from, from, from those early days. And I think what, what Barney's done really well and clear and what we're trying to continue now is the ethos and vision and the mission of the organisation has stayed very, very consistent. And therefore, everyone who comes in, you know, we might have different views on how to build the product, politics, uh, how often we should work in an office. It doesn't matter as long as we're all behind that that purpose, um, yeah, that's what really, really counts. So I think whether it's personal values or an organization's values, if you're strong on your values, it will give you a framework to, to scale the business properly. That's just my interpretation. I, I relate very personally to that as well. Um, I think I even wrote this down somewhere that for me, business is not an office or this or that. It's, it's a group of people that are united by, um, you know, a vision, mission, um, and, and core set of, of values. So that makes makes perfect sense. And I guess from, I guess not necessarily the companies you've worked at, but just from observations, do you think that the cultural element is is focused on early enough in organisation, broadly speaking, or is it more a, a reactive type? Oh, we've got some problems, let's focus on this. What, what's your general opinion on that? Brilliant question. Um... I'd say two things to that. One is um, you, you just from observation, talking to friends in other organizations, 
if you're at the point where you're trying to figure out what are the right reinforcement mechanisms for the culture that we want, you've already lost. Um, the culture has to be in the organization via an osmosis. And really what you should be saying is how do we package the best bits of this and explain it to new joiners, right? How do we make sure that they feel engaged and part of this straight away? Not how do we reinforce a top-down set of values or a mandate for what the culture here is. If, if the CEO is telling you what the culture is, you've already lost, right? It has to be more organic than that. Um, and I think I have seen quite a few businesses where they'll get to the point where they'll get to a certain scale and the CEO will say, right, we need to go really hard on values and culture here and start trying to reinforce it like a program. And it doesn't work like that. You, know, you have to nurture it much more organically than that. Mm. And then just help people become immersed in that. And um, some of the basic stuff you can do to do that is talk about that, right? Talk about it during selection process. Say, look, this is what it's like to work here. Genuinely, these are the values we subscribe to. During the onboarding process, you know, come and do all of these various activities in the company and get to know people. That will get people immersed with the culture a lot quicker than sending them a website or a PowerPoint deck with here's what our values and culture is. It just doesn't ring true. Um, and then the second thing I'd say as well about culture is you can dilute it super fast um, by hiring too quickly. So one thing I'm always conscious of, and Arnie and I at Clio are very aligned on, <clears throat> is not getting carried away and scaling too quickly. Mm. You know, you can do that. Um, there's been organizations recently uh, who have done that and it ends badly. You either, um, you turn into this swirling vortex of an organization where new people are coming in all the time with big price tags and no one's quite sure what they're there to do and no one properly onboards them. and some cut through and add value but a lot aren't enabled to do so mm. and you know I, I worry about organizations that go from 100 to 600 in a year and those types of journeys um, and the second thing we have seen recently in some tech orgs and even in london is it ends up in redundancies you go past what you should be spending on people and um one thing i really like about Clio and and, and Barney and i are very aligned on is every single hire think about really 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 carefully specifically if they're going into x squad what skills do they need what personality traits do they need be super super tight on your selection take your time with it there's nothing worse than the bad hire. so um, that's that, that that's the second point i'd say about culture you can uh, you can get into the vanity metrics of saying we've expanded from 250 to 500 this year without actually thinking what did that do to the organization what did that do to the culture and indeed, what value have those people been able to add because of the way we brought them in? Yeah, I completely agree. And I've seen personal experience and um, observations that, and, and Nico and Platypus will talk very passionately about this, but the culture isn't static, right? Um, and like you say, in an early organization, the culture is what the business is, right? And that's through osmosis, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people in a room, like, you probably don't even need to be writing it down. You need to be intentional about who you are and what you're doing. But yeah, as the business scales, it needs to evolve to to some words, to some statements, to some underlying behaviours that um, that support that. And yeah, I think the the stage appropriate nature of, of culture is is key. So yeah, thanks for touching on on that. Great. On the flip side, um, what would you say is the 
the biggest um, piece of, of BS advice um, you've heard when it comes to scaling teams and people practices, something that you've seen professed um, as great, um, but feel like early stage organizations should avoid. And, and you've touched on one really key point, which is that the vanity metric of scale being um, how many people you have in your workforce. I get behind that a million percent. But yeah, any other any other gems that you've heard that you would suggest people yeah. consider carefully before executing? Yeah, there's there's two. That would definitely be my number one. I I whenever I interview a, a recruiter, um, if the only thing they ever talk about is I hired X number of people per annum and there's no follow-up on that, that really, really, really worries me. Um, mm. Uh, and similarly for organizations, to your point, it is a vanity metric. And I'd much rather someone said, you know, I hired 15, 20 people that year um, and the company did this. And this is what part those people played in it and they all enjoyed working there. You know, give me a little bit more than just that one metric. Um, that, that, that annoys me. And the second one, um, and again, I think a lot of early stage businesses are really guilty of this um, when they're trying to scale. Is it really, really, really appropriate at the early stage of an organization to go and hire um, big, big, big directors of product, et cetera, from Google and Facebook? Have you really, really thought about that hire or are you doing it because they're clearly very smart people who um, will bring an intellect to the organization, but have you actually thought about how that experience translates into what you're trying to do? Um, and I, I really like that about the Clio product team at the moment. We've got people who actually understand that uh, uh, the industry that we're in um, and get what we're trying to build as a product. And uh, our incoming VP product is from a subscription-based business and we're a subscription-based product. So think about those hires, back to that point, think about those hires in terms of what skill sets do you need to do that particular job. Don't just say, this person worked at X, Y, and Z company and went to this uni, therefore it's a no-brainer, they're a hire. And I do think there's a lot of businesses out there that do that. It's identical recruiting is what I call it. They, I'm, I'm, grinning know, and, I'm grinning and nodding because, yeah, um, yeah it wouldn't be the, you know, I can't count the number of conversations I've had where folks have said, our VPN should be from Google, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. And, I'm with you. Like, why? Um, because when they come into your ten-person organisation, they're not going to have the resources around them that they had at those organisations. And is your is your startup um, a safe environment for them psychologically? You know, can yeah, they survive? Absolutely. Can they do that kind of stuff? So that's great. I really love those points. And let's jump into the the building out the sort of management layer or executive team in in an organisation. You know, like Clio or similar. Um, you've touched on a few points, but I guess I'd be keen to know why is it so important and more specifically at the phase of growth you guys are at now. Um, yeah, what are the key points when building at a management layer or exec team? And we've touched on a few bits and pieces here around, you know, promoting from within continuity and cultural retention, the deep consideration around where's this person coming from and do they have the requisite skills and personality traits to help drive the business? But yeah, let's, Let's focus on this sort of building out management layer or executive mm. teams. Super important. I think there's um, uh, there's probably um, uh, three points I'd, I'd point to uh, 
especially at the stage of, say, CLIAM, um, and actually it, it translates to most organisations, you need that humility and you need people who are willing to roll their sleeves up if you're at an early stage organisation. If you hire someone um, and they're on an empire building mission from day one and, you know, as an example, say you hire a VP finance and their first answer is, great, go hire me a head of finance, a head of FP&A, you'll do all the work. <laughs> you know, we're early stage where you'll need to get your hands dirty and do stuff. Um, and I think you have to be, to our point earlier on about where you hire from, if you can get the right personality traits and the right attitude from big organizations, brilliant. But if not, have a look at a comparable one and hire from there. Um, so I think that's one. Uh, and I, I, I think the humility and servant leadership at our stage of growth is absolutely incredibly important. Um, you know, I um, I know everyone in Clio just about now. I've been here a few months now. You know most people to have a conversation with. And I would never want to lose um, the ability that I have to send them a Slack message and ask them anything and vice versa. We want that openness. We want that transparency. Make yourself available. Make yourself accessible. Uh, and put the effort into uh, being a presence internally, even remotely, I think is important. Uh, and the big one, I'd say, particularly if we're talking about a clear stage organization, you probably want to slightly overhire into your uh, VP roles. Um, and the reason I say that is we're going to accelerate, I would expect, through the Series B, Series C, etc., quite quickly uh, due to the nature of the growth. And one thing I did learn at Trainline where we had a very, very stable leadership team, a very stable exec team, you know, to the point where some people have been there 15 years. Mm. It translates to a stable and fairly happy organization. Um, now, it does obviously present the challenge of progression. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, some people uh, did leave because there wasn't the next step for them. But the vast, vast, vast majority looked up and saw the same people with the same behaviors, the same attitudes, the same values, who had a ton of experience in that organization and could genuinely help you. Um, and I thought, I thought Claire, the CEO at Trainline, was brilliant at keeping that team together. Um, and I'd love to do something like that again at Clio, where you know we slightly overhire at the moment, and then we've got the same leadership team right the way through the next couple of phases. So they'd yeah. be the three things I'd call out. Perfect. And I, I can't remember who I was listening to, and there was a big, big, big topic around continuity and how it helps you go faster. Mm -hmm. um, assuming it's, it's <laughs> yeah, that that team is effective. Um, so yeah, I can certainly uh, certainly see the value of that. And thanks for sharing those points. Um, so the ethos of Clio as a product is to kind of bring fairness to our understanding of money, um, speaking and engaging with consumers, I guess, in a more human to human yeah. um, way um, that I guess in traditional banking is questionable in some, <laughs> in some cases. Um, and I really love kind of the way that the business approaches this. And, and as I mentioned previously, I think it's it's a gap and super, super impactful. Um, how do you kind of wrap? I guess the, the topic here is employer brand. Um, mm. There's a strong sense of, of that fairness and openness in, in your employer brand as well um, and reflected in the tone of voice that's used. Um, from my understanding, it's super important to to your function um, as a people from a people perspective about this brand inclusivity um, and diversity 
can you tell us a bit about how you kind of bring the inclusivity topic to the fore internally at Clio um, and mm. how this might be evolving over the coming months? Because I'm super happy to see that organizations are being far more intentional about this topic. Um, and I'd love for us to be able to to get some of your your wisdom um, in terms of how practically organizations can can start to to, to implement and, and support um, a culture of diversity and inclusion. That's a brilliant question. And it's probably one of the things I think about the most since joining a new business. Um, there's a lot to unpack on this one, right? Mm. I think um, on the diversity point to start with, um, so if you're talking about ED and I, normally, particularly the I gets forgotten. Um, and the reason for that is quite often because it's not as easily quantifiable as saying, you know, we have 60% representation on our leadership team of people from um, a less represented background or whatever. So people generally skew towards the former because it's easier to quantify. Mm -hmm. But actually, long term, the I is the bit that makes the business change. Um, that's the cultural change. Um, and one thing I did uh, get from Trainline, um, and we did a lot of this, was be really intentional about the um, equality and diversity bit. So uh, I, not everyone agrees with this, but I never <clears throat> had any issue with um, running uh, purely diverse searches. Um, and we did that intentionally at Trainline. You know, mm -hmm. we, want, we wanted equal representation across a variety of levels. And rightly so, and I think we built a better business for doing that. Right. Um, Sorry to cut in, but a super important mm. question and conversations I've been having kind of in my in my day job. Um, mm. You mentioned that kind of fair representation um, mm. at different levels. How do you, from your perspective, how do you ensure that happens? You know, through through different stages of the recruitment process. Do you focus on that the outcome, um, or do you focus on the what you can influence at different stages of the interview process from like a recruiter perspective, i.e. percentage of pipeline, final interview slate, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I focus on the inputs on the funnel um, and that's where I think the recruitment team can be really, really directly intentional about we are only sourcing for um, a certain cohort of candidates. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, again, back to my point about hardwiring this stuff into your... Uh, your processes um, if let's take a standard recruiters week they're probably sourcing four days a week mm. if a day and a half of that is focused on um, targeting people from underrepresented backgrounds I'm good with that because that's part of your job to build a representative organization mm -hmm. second reason is as well particularly for, for Clio you want an employee base that represents your customer base. You know, mm. you want a you want a diversity and variety because you'll build better products and get better outcomes. Um, so there's all sorts of reasons to do it. Um, so I think that's really important in terms of the kind of the D be be intentional about who you're bringing in and and, and be ready to be very direct on that. Yeah. But on the inclusion point, which is um, uh, which is the the, the 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 big question everyone's wrestling with at the moment. We've got a, a phrase we say to people when they're joining Clear, which is come to Clear and be your weird, wonderful, wacky selves, right? And I think we say that a lot as they're joining CEO when we says it in the kickoff meetings. We we don't want anyone to feel any pressure to put on a facade when they come to work. You know, mm. be yourself and creating that 
genuine culture of psychological safety where people can be themselves and sometimes say things which, you know what, everyone in the organization may not agree with, that's okay. If you're going to have an inclusive organization, hear all viewpoints, discuss, discuss in a you know, really civilized manner um, and have an exchange of views. So we have um, a bunch of different Slack channels where people express views on politics, all sorts. Um, and it, it works really well for us. And I think the reason it works well for us is we get this stuff out in the open and we talk about it. Mm. You know, we don't we don't try to suppress these conversations and say, this isn't a work conversation. I think those days are dead. Um, you know, you're a product of the society you operate within. Uh, and we, we actively have these channels and encourage these discussions because we find that actually it makes the organization more cohesive because there's a, there's a medium where you talk about this stuff and people have a very open exchange of views. It's great. Um, but there is some other stuff. So I think particularly on um, inclusion, it's about doing the micro behaviors, not focusing so much on the macro. So I think people will say, right, we've written a DNI statement and it's on the careers page, therefore inclusion will now magically happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you'll go to a squad meeting in that team and the same three people will talk for the hour and the other 15 will sit on the end of the Zoom call and say nothing at all. Mm. Um, so we do, um, we do focus on the micro behaviors where we'll train people in um, better facilitation, more inclusive facilitation of meetings, as an example, um, because most meetings you go to are not inclusive forums. It's the same people doing all of the talking, taking up all of the airtime, you know, not always being great at inviting people in and inviting views in. Um, and even those small kind of modifications and micro behaviors make a huge difference to how the organization runs. Yeah. Um, and the final thing I'd call out is. You have to have that transparency um, and we are super transparent on virtually everything at Clio. We share, um, we share the org planners and the team planners down to the minute detail of how we're planning to build the team and the business out. Uh, we share um, uh, everything we possibly can about what we're doing. So to the point where uh, myself and the CEO's planner about how we're building the squads and building the org, it's all open sourced. Everyone can see it whenever they want to see it. All of the Slack channels we try and keep open as well. So there's not these private conversations or um, nefarious plans going on in the background where we're planning what we're up to. If you want to look at it, you can look at it. And if you've got questions about it, ask us the question. And I think that breeds inclusion because we're just transparent on as much as we can be. Um, they'd be the main points I'd raise. Brilliant. I love it. And some some real kind of tangible um, things that people can can take away um, into their own thought process. So thank you very much for that. Let's, I guess, similar topic um, on, you know, cultural uh, elements and impact. Um, and we've touched on the point that you're building out on hiring in, in multiple regions and launching global hubs. And um, certainly from conversations I have day to day and lots of people out there are probably thinking about from a scale perspective, you know, do they do they launch in a new a new territory? Um, you know, that could be. Let's you know, see examples of this UK-based organisation scaling in uh, in the US um, or or other engineering sites in Europe. And I'd love to get some of your your advice um, here. So, are there any specific hiring or people practices that? you should be mindful of or, or plan for when you start to, to hire in a new location and, and how do you or 
but essentially, how do you re replicate that that scaling success from a hiring process, from a cultural perspective, in a new region, whilst being mindful that you are in a new region and, and there will be natural kind of cultural differences. So, yeah, big topic, but I'd love to get a, a summarised version of thoughts from you on that one. It's a great question as well. Um, think about this quite a lot. Um, again, uh, I would hark back to mission, values and principles because the things that should be ubiquitous in a new market um, uh, in terms of what the candidates buy into should be the mission of the business, the values of the organization and the principles on how we build products. Mm. Um, they are universal, they translate into any region and if people can get behind the mission, um, then you're quite right. I mean, you have to accept that there's gonna be uh, local differences and interpretations in terms of cultures and practices. Mm. But that's good. Again, back to the diversity point, I think that's a great thing. Um, we've learned probably more from having a customer service team in the US than virtually anything else we've done um, in the last 12 months. Having those people who are um, in that market, listening to the voice of those customers who are using the product every day and playing that back to our product dev teams has been instrumental. Um, so keep the... Uh, keep the focus on the, the, the vision, uh, the values and the principles, but on the rest, accept that it's gonna change at the edges and be comfortable with that, accept that as a plus point. Um, and I think the second thing that you do have to think of from a slightly more tactical point of view is how do you raise your profile and your employer brand in, um, in, 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 uh, in new regions? So selection at the moment, it's all remote anyway, so that kind of works. Um, and that can translate to the US or the UK or wherever else you're aiming. Um, but I think actually being able to attract the right level of talent in those markets is, is tougher. Um, and we do have, again, quite a concerted focus when we're talking about our employer brand, just to focus on two or three key points. Don't try and, don't try and do too much with your employer brand. Um, I think people sometimes think we have to open up absolutely every aspect of the organization to external scrutiny and you know we need um case studies with our employees going out every week <laughs> you don't what you need is when you know someone gets a message uh, about potentially joining your company they know what your company is synonymous with or they can understand it very quickly from having a look at the materials um and uh i think if you're clear on what the company is what it stands for and what it's trying to do then your employer brand normally benefits from that. Um, mm. You know, again, uh, if I try and zoom out, an employer brand is not about representing whether you have a better benefits package than someone else. Uh, to what we were talking about earlier, a brand is something that is something that makes you feel a certain way. It 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 it, it, it denotes an emotion, um, positive or negative, um, and. Uh, it conveys, um, it conveys a feeling. And I think if people understand who you are and what you're trying to do, then you might achieve that. But, you know, if they see that you pay an extra 1% on your pension contributions monthly, probably not so much. It's <laughs> a great topic. And the whole, I could, we could talk for hours on the employer brand piece, but I completely agree, you know, the authenticity of the brand and not over-engineering it, right? Like you say, it's not um, intended to be forced um and, and i want to draw out a point that you made uh and that 
you should feel a certain way about an employment brand and a business. And it's okay for somebody, if you're being authentic, it's okay and probably really, really good if somebody feels negatively about that or it doesn't mm. relate personally to them and they don't apply to the organisation because it should, in equal measure, attract or repel sounds a bit of a, an aggressive word, but, but you get my point. And I think a lot of people miss that element. It's kind of sell, 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 sell. And often what they're selling is not authentic and that has you know, ramifications <laughs> Far bigger, right. further down the line, right? Brilliant. Great points there. Thank you very much for that. We'll go into some lighter questions now, um, <laughs> just as we, as we look to wrap up. Um, this is the magic wand question. So if you had a magic wand, um, what would you say is one challenge um, that you would like to, uh, to solve with your magic wand uh, when it comes to, to scaling teams or, or people practices? Yeah, well, look, if anyone can tell me where there's about eight to 10 really, really um, lovely uh, people who are high quality Ruby engineers, give me a shout. Um, no, I, I, think, um, I, I think one thing that is a continual frustration probably for most people who work in people uh, leadership um, is uh, the caliber of tooling around stuff like analytics still isn't there. Um, and the amount of work I have, I, I'm pretty data driven, right? And I, I, I always have been, and I believe in it. Um, and um, the the caliber and the quality of the tooling, particularly around uh, team planning, allocation, where people are in squads, organizational structure planning, the tooling they're still poor. Um, mm. Recruitment systems have definitely improved, right? That's yeah. been a that's been a big, big plus of the last ten years. I think we'd all, you know, you, you're much deeper in this field than I, but we'd all subscribe to that. Um, they've improved, but on the other side, once you get into the slightly more back office team planning, budget allocation, where are we spending our money? Where are we placing our chips as an organisation? Uh, the tooling's still poor, and if you've got poor tooling, then the insight's not as sharp as it could be. Um, so if I had a magic wand, I'd say better people analytics systems. Yeah, I'd join you on that as well. Um, I, can, I, was, I won't mention the company name in case it's something <laughs> they do internally, but there was a consultancy I was speaking to that had a frustration on a similar point, and they were, to your point earlier, looking to build out something from like a resource allocation perspective that... They had squads and tribes as well and, and, and sort of product-focused teams where they could move the people around based on the, the skills and um, uh, softer skills, you know, mm -hmm. cultural elements as well. Um, and that had associated budget margin, all of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Love something like that. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Um, what is one thought, value or phrase that, that you live by? Oh, great question. Great question. Um, assume someone who does it for a living knows more about it than you do. Just be super, super humble. I can't stand leaders in any business who think that because they're in a certain level of role that they have the expertise to um, solutionize for uh, for others without listening to their perspective. Uh, I'll, I'll use my own example since joining Clio. Um, you know, I, I want to talk to the recruiters and understand the pain points and I want them to tell me what we should do about it and I'm there to enable 
the right answers. Um, you know, if, if, if we've got a lady in HR operations, as we do, who spends eight hours a day in our back office databases, she's going to know an awful lot more about what we need to fix in there than I am, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think good engineering managers see it a similar way in terms of when you step away from the code, you have to trust the developers because they're mm -hmm. closer to the code than you. Um, and if I could, if I could find a people-related version of um, trust the people who are close to the code, then that would be it. But I can't think of a snappy title now. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Another piece of, of great advice. So, last question before we close up: um, Is there a people leader, founder, or, or source of inspiration that you think we should try to secure as a future guest, someone you admire? think as a unique or inf impactful perspective or approach from a, a people or talent standpoint? It's interesting. Um, I have to put the, the name out there. So I worked for a guy at, uh, I've worked for a guy twice called Robin Hancock, who's I think uh, the, the CPO still at Trainline. Um, and he's been at a bunch of big, big, big dot coms that have done brilliantly. Um, and um, the reason I would say that, that Robin is definitely worth talking to or listening to for any kind of up and coming people leader in any capacity is he's probably the most commercially savvy people leader I've ever met. Mm. And um, he, he was the one who showed me that if you get the people or the HR function right, you can absolutely be a driver of the business instead mm. of just a support function. Yeah. Um, uh, and he really, really understands how to link up people's strategy with commercial strategy. And that still is where a lot of people or HR leaders fall down. They're good in their bubble. Mm -hmm. but they can't make that link to have the credibility of the exec table. And we know the best out there can. Um, and he was someone I learned a ton from in that capacity. So, yeah, he'd, he'd definitely be worth having a conversation. That's great. And I... I'm super excited already not having even spoken to the person. I, I agree that having the people function as a, a product of the organization, like you say, rather than a, a tree that gets shaken <laughs> when people want some fruit to fall from it is a yeah, different game. David, it's been a real pleasure to chatting with you. Um, I've, enjoyed, I've enjoyed learning from you. I hope that the people that are listening in um, have also enjoyed the, the content. I'm really excited to see um, Cleo's next phase or phases of growth, should I say, um, especially following the um, exciting series B. So thanks again for sharing with us and being so open. And um, thanks everybody for, for listening in. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Cheers.